Hi, and welcome to Eat My Words, a twice-monthly Arizona Highways podcast that celebrates Arizona's unique culinary culture. I'm your host, Kelly Vaughn. This episode will sound a bit untraditional. As we fly into Thanksgiving, then just a few days later into Hanukkah, then just a few weeks later into Christmas, three people share their reflections about the holidays. The work is the result of a writing workshop I had the privilege of teaching at Cattle Track in Scottsdale in early November. The prompt? Write an essay based on the holiday table. First up is Jason Bruner, a historian of Christianity at Arizona State University in Tempe, who remembers one cold Thanksgiving in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The first place we lived after we were married, she at 21, I at 23, was an apartment on the third floor of a late 19th century brick walk-up in Cambridge, where we knew no one, having both grown up in the American South. We could afford to live there in a home with two bedrooms and hardwood floors within walking distance of Harvard Square, only because it was subsidized by my graduate program. Newly graduated with BAs and freshly in debt for grad school, we hovered just above broke. Our typical dates in between minimum wage shifts and seminars often found us eating the sack lunches we brought to the park by the Charles River, keeping one another afloat in the haze of new love. That apartment was filled with hand-me-downs. My bed from high school, the couch I learned to tie my shoes behind, wall hangings from my wife's grandparents' house, recently vacated for a retirement condo. The few new things were wedding gifts, a metal cheese tray, a set of hurricane lamps, the rainbow of fiesta ware dishes, a toaster oven, a bedspread. We kept a wooden table and two chairs the previous occupants left, but since the table wobbled, we used it for jackets, backpacks, and the sacks of day-old baked goods my wife brought back from the deli where she worked. We ate our meals at the small circular table whose sides could fold down to fit in our narrow kitchen. I'd bought it with a Target gift card we were given for our wedding. But the rickety rectangle in the entryway was the only place where we could sit with more than two people, and so that's what we used that first Thanksgiving we hosted in our own home when we took the crystal candle holders out of their boxes and hoped they wouldn't topple over. My wife, Keely, heard that international students often spent holidays alone, so she thought we should sign up to host two people so they wouldn't have to be by themselves in a vacated dorm over Thanksgiving break. She's welcoming like that, while I felt reluctant to host anyone amidst our own cobbled-together simplicity. This has since become a dynamic, me focusing on scarcity and she on the fact that it's already enough. Keely is unpretentious and kind. She moves comfortably around people who usually seem to feel at ease with her, even across differences. I saw this in how she treated the couple who lived on the sidewalk near the deli where she worked, how she knew their names and sought their advice on where to get an affordable winter coat. We bought a little bit extra that week, our first turkey, mashed potatoes, green beans, cranberry sauce, and a pop-on-the-counter tube of crescent rolls. We anxiously arranged the table just so and awaited our first holiday dinner guests. We heard a knock at the door and opened it to find a Korean husband and wife, 
both taller and leaner and seemingly several years older than us. They were dressed for a formal occasion. The husband greeted me in jeans and a sail rack shirt with a gift wrap box of chocolate truffles that surely cost more than the $25 of free spending money we had budgeted for each month. The husband was in engineering, a field I, a historian of religion, knew nearly nothing about, and he didn't seem comfortable speaking much English. But perhaps to account for the apparent differences, he smiled as he said, we were expecting someone, and here he paused carefully, older, and we laughed. I remember the rest of the meal passing through a quiet warmth as we explained our strange family foods and traditions, Keely asking to learn Korean phrases, which she can still recite nearly 15 years later. Before my wife and I left for Cambridge, I asked a former professor about what to expect in graduate school. He told me that it would be difficult because we wouldn't have much money. But he said, you probably won't realize you don't have any money because you'll have each other. And you'll probably look back on these years and think of them as some of the best you've had together. And he was right. Next is copywriter Liz Westcott of Phoenix on creating new family traditions. The old family hatchback crunched to a stop at the top of a steep driveway, bordered by mountains of snow that glinted icy blue in the moonlight. Both back doors sprang open simultaneously. After what seemed like a never-ending journey from Illinois, my little sister and I launched out of the car and burst through the back door and up the stairs that led directly into the kitchen of my grandparents' modest Wisconsin home. Entering the kitchen, we were enveloped by a warmth that seeped through the cracks in our multiple layers of winter clothing and entered our very bones. A slightly tangy smell hung in the air, savory, buttery, laced with subtle spices, and my mouth watered. Grandma Alice bustled in, gathering us close and planting quick little pecks on our cold heads. Grandpa Duke smiled at us from his post at the stove, busily stirring his famous Christmas chili. To this day, no one is quite sure how this holiday tradition started. Later, we would all sit around the big dining room table, my parents, my Uncle Danny, Grandma Alice and Grandpa Duke, steaming bowls of chili before us, eagerly shoveling in mouthfuls with crispy saltine crackers slathered with margarine. When we were all full to bursting, drowsy and content, the Christmas songs would begin. We would sing until we ran out of songs, and then it was time for bed. When I was the only member of my family not living in Alaska, there was always a bittersweet anticipation of the holidays. Isn't it funny how a taste can describe an emotion? The excitement that, for me, always accompanied their approach, the joy of the season, goodwill toward men, benevolent feelings seemed to saturate the air. Looking forward to seeing my parents, my sister and her family in Alaska, spending time together, albeit brief in the big scheme of things, Bittersweet because I knew it would be the only time I would see my family till the next year, the next holiday season. I'm sure Grandpa Duke was smiling down as my sister and I took over the kitchen, preparing his famous Christmas chili as we talked, laughed, and reminisced. The tangy, savory scent soon filling the air. When my niece and nephew came along, we sang Christmas songs together again, nestled in the cozy living room that was always dominated by a slightly irregular Christmas tree. 
The great Alaska wilderness was outside this time, instead of a sleepy Wisconsin farm town. I spent my first Christmas without my family the year I met my now husband, Dan. At the time, I intended to head up to Alaska later in the year, so I found myself with a week off for Christmas and nowhere to go. I had always wanted to visit New Mexico and especially to visit the Pueblos up north, so I pieced together a spur-of-the-moment road trip through Arizona's neighboring state in the dead of the winter. Somehow, I convinced Dan to accompany me, even though he abhors cold weather. To save money, we decided to pack our own food. Dan would make his famous stuffed peppers, a delectable recipe handed down from his Italian father. But despite my careful planning, our holiday didn't go quite as I had imagined. We arrived in Taos later than anticipated that first night. It turned out that the motel room I had booked specifically for the fireplace, imagining a toasty Christmas Eve bundled together in front of the blaze, didn't contain any firewood and the office was closed. There was also no microwave. So Christmas Eve found us huddled around a tiny lopsided wooden table, eating soggy peppers stuffed with cold meat and rice. We didn't know it then, but that was how a family tradition began. We were so bewitched by the stark beauty and ambiance of Northern New Mexico at Christmas time that we ended up returning the next Christmas and the next. It never gets old and yet it's always the same. After hours on the road, opening the vehicle door and tumbling out into the impossible bone chilling cold. The first crisp breath of Northern New Mexico whose winter air perpetually smells of pinion pine the gently glowing ferrolitos that line the winding streets near the old plaza in Santa Fe, the deep knell of the old cathedral bell signaling the start of mass, the close warmth inside the small mission church in Taos where the air hangs thick with incense. There is a magic there that keeps calling us back. Over the years, some things have changed. Bringing stuffed peppers eventually morphed into bringing just the meat and rice that filled the peppers for convenience and ease of transport. We gained a third traveler, our daughter Petra, who has spent every Christmas of her short life in New Mexico. For her, that's just what Christmas is. We soon graduated from meat and rice to extravagant gourmet Christmas dinners in glamorous hotel settings, where we consume cleverly contrived multi-course meals to the accompaniment of Native American flutes. But somehow, although our senses were dazzled and our stomachs delighted, something was missing. We both felt it. Maybe it wasn't what was on the table that was really important. Last winter, we prepared to embark on our annual Christmas trip. The truck was overflowing. Winter outerwear, a snowboard, a myriad of bags, about a hundred of Petra's toys and all of our wrapped gifts. We seemed to have packed enough for a month. Dan and I puttered around, rearranging things and making last minute adjustments. Suddenly, the door to the house swung open and Petra appeared. Wait, we can't forget the most important thing. She came rushing out of the house a big Tupperware container of meat and rice cradled carefully in her little hands. Finally, fitness instructor and trainer Mindy Collum leans into a memory of her beloved Nana and one very special dish. Laughter and scents of onions floated through the air Cigarette smoke lingered and joyful voices boomed. I knew what I was walking into before I even opened the front door. My family, my Nana, Papa Mac, my parents, four sets of aunts and uncles squeezed around the tiny kitchen. 
like blissfully happy sardines in a can. The old trailer creaking with each step of a cowboy boat. Cousins running in and out, yelling, not it. There are 13 of us racing to play hide and go seek or king of the hay bells. Happiness and love dripped from every inch of the tiny home. The adults didn't care nor worry about what we were doing. It was pure freedom for us. In the kitchen, the last of the noodles were being added to the creamy gravy, which combined made the most delectable chicken and noodles or Nana's noodles. To visit her house the day before, you would find noodles draped all over the kitchen, made with her knobby arthritic hands and then strewn over the kitchen tables and chairs to dry. Those dry noodles were then added to a gravy of heavy cream, butter, salt, pepper, and freshly deboned chicken. Nothing melts in your mouth like those noodles and nobody makes them with more love than Nana. Our sassy, strong matriarch spends days preparing for our holiday meals. My cousin Carrie and I, being the oldest girls, would sometimes be recruited to help. We were tasked with punching out biscuits from the pillowy dough she rolled out before us, where we each given an old can and instructed to press and twist into the dough, making imperfect circles that would turn into flaky, delectable biscuits. We would watch Nana's hands, speckled white with flour and working much quicker than ours. Her blue eyes twinkling with delight and having us there by her side. <laughs> she would giggle and always tell us how great we are, never criticizing. Once our job was complete, she would scrape up the leftovers and give us each a pinch of dough, which we would quickly plop into our mouths. She would envelop us in a warm hug and lovingly call us her little dough heads. We would skip away with the scents of Chloe perfume and yeast sticking to our clothes like a cozy blanket. She would continue salting this and peppering that, eventually grabbing a cold can of Cora's original as time approached for us to gather around the tables, adults at their table, and kids up to the age of 18 or 20 years of age to the kids' table. On a side note, Nana would use a can of beer in lieu of yeast in her biscuits. To this day, this tangy smell of beer takes me back to plopping that gooey morsel in my mouth and being her dough head. By this point in the day, hunger has set in with the cousins, although we are not quite ready to leave our kingdoms of the hay bell. Drunken laughter and do you remember when? Stories are flowing from the adults. Each story better than the last and each sibling outdoing the other. Wherever you may find yourself in the coming weeks, all of us at Eat My Words and Arizona Highways wish you a joyous holiday season. May your tables be bountiful, may your hearts be full, and may you make new memories while wrapping yourself in the warmth of old ones. Until next time, eat my words.